This is Thoughts from the Metal Cavern, where only one opinion matters, and it's not yours. G'day there and thanks for tuning in once again to Thoughts from the Metal Cavern and today's episode of The Casual Man Catter. Today I've got two topics. The first topic we're talking about today is the test cricket season in Australia and the delayed start to that due to the World Cup going into our season. But of course, none of that matters because India rule the world. We all know that. So that's where we're at. And just discussing the way that at right now, at this point in time, I should be sitting here. Instead of talking to you, I should be watching Test Cricket on the TV, having a quiet scotch, eating some chilli chips, and enjoying the day. But instead, I'm not. And there's still so much white ball cricket to come. So we're going to talk about the delayed start to the season and what that could mean for the whole of the summer. Following that, I'm going to talk about disputed catches in international cricket and what could possibly be the problem over the next 12 months, given what has occurred in recent times in utilising replays and slowed uh, motion replays about trying to determine whether a catch is actually fair or not. So that's the agenda on today's edition of The Casual Man Catter, right here on the podcast that can't stay away from cricket too long, Thoughts from the Metal Cavern. recording this which is at the end of November usually we are fully entrenched in the first test of the Australian summer no matter who's touring and generally the game is played at the Gabba it's the last week of November and we're all having a wonderful time with test cricket out on the field and enjoying every moment well this summer we're not and it's causing an enormous amount of stress in my life, because it's ridiculous that we have to wait another two and a half weeks before the first ball is bowled in the first test of this summer. Why are we doing this? Well, because, of course, the World Cup has just been run and won in India, and because the ICC is basically run by another board, who shall remain nameless, nameless, We had to have that World Cup in October and November of this year. Which means that not only did we have the World Cup, but then a completely meaningless five-match 
T20 international series between India and Australia, of which we are right in the middle of right now. So most of our Australian players are still winding their way back home after the World Cup. Some of the guys are not playing in the T20i series and some are leaving now to come home. But then we have the start of the Big Bash League, which occurs next week. So that then leads up to the first test. So in order to make sure that the Big Bash League is being watched, a lot of our test players are also turning out for their Big Bash teams for the first week of the season. So the first test of this summer isn't being played until almost into the third week of December. And then the Boxing Day test, which becomes the second test of the summer, and then the Sydney test, which becomes the third test of the summer. Which means all of November has gone without a test match, and most of the lead-up to Boxing Day is all for one test match, rather than the three we usually have before that occurs. Now, I'm all for test cricket moving into January, which is what will happen this summer in order to make the World Cup occur when it did. But surely Australia and Cricket Australia have to be able to put up a better argument than allowing a World Cup to be played at the time of year that it was in India and take up most of our test summer by doing so. That would mean standing up to India, which no one is willing to do because India apparently creates 65% of the cricket money every season in the world of cricket. And there's an awful lot of money at stake there. So making sure that we play, as I said, a meaningless five-match series of T20s in India following a World Cup where Australia played India in the final of the World Cup, just so that India can make their money out of that, and I don't know if Australia make any money out of it or not, just seems absolutely ludicrous. But that's the power that India hold in world cricket. But what does that do for Australia and Australian fans who want to watch cricket? Well, it stuffs up the entire summer is what it does. Because usually, at this time of year, I get to take a day off work and I sit and I watch the first day of the first test every summer from my home, uh, hopefully with a couple of other friends who might turn up, but sometimes just by myself, and enjoy the whole day and the experience of test cricket starting in Australia. And good or bad cricket, it's still a fun day. But we don't have that now till mid-December. And mid-December is an extremely difficult time to take off work when you're leading up to Christmas holidays and all that kind of stuff. So how does that affect me? Well, it affects me very poorly. <laughs> I guess is the best way to put it. It's just ludicrous that white ball cricket is taking over the start of the Australian summer so much that we've had the World Cup, we have this five-match T20I series in India, and then we have the start of the Big Bash League before any test cricket in Australia is played. Now, the BBL does pause for a few days for the outcome of the test match, which is some good, I guess. But it just means that our Australian cricketers have had pretty much 
zero red ball cricket leading up into the first test, which this season is against Pakistan. Now, Pakistan are going to be in the same boat, don't get me wrong. But Australians have been playing white ball cricket, 50 overs and 20 overs. Uh, most of our Australian players who play both forms, of course, have no red ball cricket. And those that are just red ball cricketers in this day and age, say perhaps Nathan Lyon, are getting a couple of Shield games in before the season starts. The same as Kawaja. Um, but all the others, none whatsoever. So we're going in blind into a test summer. The other thing they've done, of course, is that because the first test of the summer is until December, we're going to Perth for the first test of the summer, which works out lovely for the East Coast, East Coast uh, states. Uh, their cricket won't start till about 1.30, so hopefully you get to see most of the test day once you've come home from work. But that then throws Brisbane into the Australia Day testing, and as they did a few years ago against Sri Lanka, which lasted not long because it was a day-night test. I think it lasted two and a half days. How will the Brisbane summer go once we get into the wet time of the year in January, and will we see the whole test played out? And of course, the Adelaide test, which has been such a success in recent years, uh, being played at a rent as, as the second test of the summer, which is usually in about the second week of of December, is now being played in the middle of January, and it is also not a pink ball test, a day-night test. So that will be interesting to see what the crowds are like in Adelaide, given they have been so good over recent years. And of course, the Sydney test tends to get washed out every year now, so will that change, given that at the current point in time, as I'm speaking, we're on about our fourth day straight of rain, and the summer that was going to bring no rain has already washed out half of the cricket season in the local area. So yes, no test cricket, and it's proving to be a pain in the ass. Um, and I don't think it bodes well for uh, television ratings. I don't think it bodes well for either Australia or Pakistan, who are going to have so little red ball cricket. In fact, Pakistan will have a better chance because they play uh, the Prime Minister's eleven in a four-day game, uh, and yet most of our top players, Cummins, Smith, uh, Stark, Hazelwood, whoever the wicketkeeper ends up being, are not even going to get a game of red ball cricket before we move into that first test in Perth. I think we have troubles ahead for this summer and hopefully that is sorted out before next season and we can get back to a normal test series uh, in the normal times that we are all used to in order to watch cricket and enjoy cricket for what it is. We've got a real problem in international cricket at the moment at least and, and probably at all levels but at international level at least, because all of the international games, of course, are now televised. We have multiple camera angles, and we have reviews, and we have third umpires, and we have all of this stuff going on. And the big problem we have at the moment is disputed catches. Now, in recent times, we've seen uh, over what, 25, 30 years, we've seen a number of catches now that are close to the ground that are taken by fieldsmen who say they caught it, 
the umpires come together. Uh, they send it upstairs, and generally, um, the vision is is blurred or it's inconclusive, and so the benefit of the doubt is generally given to the batter, and they are given as not out. And that has been a tough thing to put up with for many foolers over the years, given that they believe they've caught the ball, and yet because it's reviewed and they decide to try and slow it down to every single frame to try and pick up whether the ball has gone cleanly into their hands or not. Uh, and if it's if they can't say 100% that that's the case, then they use this clause, which in cricket is not in the rule book, which is benefit of the doubt to the batter. There is no rule that says that, but it's given to the batter, and so they are given not out. Uh, the most famous one I can think of is uh, Michael Vaughan being caught by Justin Langer in Adelaide in 2002. And Michael Vaughan stood his ground. Langer claimed he took the catch. The look, catch looked good on video. But of course, when you slow it right down and you get to, to zoom in, it's inconclusive. So he was given not out and he made, I think, 180 or something like that. And that proved to be a tough thing for Australian supporters to take. Of course, in recent times, what we've seen is is the Mitchell Star catch in England, where he took the catch uh, and then turned his hand over with the ball touching the ground before it could be said that he had complete control of the ball, and so that was given not out on review by the third umpire. Um, which, you know, to be honest, that's the rule, and that's fair enough. It's interesting, though, that that particular rule has not been used or utilised for as long as anyone can remember. No one ever looked or ever questioned that a catch being taken in that same way being not out. But in this case, it was ruled not out by the third umpire, and now there have been a plethora of these catches coming to light and being ruled upon by the third umpire in... Not only that test series, but then the one-day series in South Africa that Australia played in. And then, of course, we had the World Cup. So we've come to the point now that batters are standing their ground even more often now to any ball that looks like it's likely to have touched the turf at any point in time with a fielder trying to take the catch. And they're waiting to see if the third umpire will give them the benefit and say that it's not out. Now, I think, uh, if I remember correctly, Joe Root had one of those where he stood his ground and it was given as being out, and he was absolutely filthy that it was given out. So, what have we got to this point now? How do we do with deal with this going forward? Because this is going to continue to be a problem going forward from now on for any catch that's taken close to the ground. The batters are going to stand their ground. The umpires are going to be forced to send it upstairs to the third umpire. And the third umpire is going to have to rule on it with whatever technology they have available, at which point they're going to have to sort of say, is there any evidence that the ball has touched the ground or not? Through open fingers, um, through the ball bouncing before the hand, which is all that they've ever worried about before, whether the ball bounced before the ball, uh, before it reached the fielder's hands. Now... They have to try and rule on the fact that if the the fielder's hands have their fingers splayed, then perhaps the ball has gone through those, even though it goes into the palm of the hand, 
that perhaps part of the ball through splayed fingers has touched a millimetre of turf, in which case it would be ruled not out as by the rule book. So this is the ridiculous part of the situation we've now come to. And some common sense going forward is probably going to be required if we're going to find a decent solution to this. Um, and I don't know that they're going to be able to do that in the near future. Do we come to a point where every catch that is anywhere near the turf is just automatically referred to the third umpire for confirmation? In which case, we're just going to open a Pandora's box of decision-making and lengthy delays in the game in order to try and confirm or deny whether the ball has touched the ground or not? Or do we get to the point where batters start taking the fielder's word for it to say that, yes, I caught that cleanly and just walk off? Now, for those of you who aren't old enough to remember, back in the 2000s, when Ricky Ponting first became captain of the test team and then uh, or the one day team and then the test team and it came around this time at the start of a test series he tried to go to the opposing captain and before the series had started and try to get a handshake agreement that fielders on or batters on both sides would accept the fielders um, decision or word on whether they had caught a ball or not and in his mind, it was basically, it's the fairness of cricket. If you know you've caught someone, that's great. You put it up and you say you've caught it. If you know you haven't, you just immediately wave it away and say, no, that's not out. No captain, when Ricky asked to do that, accepted that and said, no, we just want to take the umpire's word on it. And he expressed his disappointment about this. And of course, a couple of captains sort of more or less said, oh, this is just another ploy by Ricky Ponting and the Australians to try and get an advantage of some description, which I don't believe is the truth. I think Ricky, honestly, with his hand on heart, just wanted fielders to, or for batters to be able to say to the fielders, did you catch that? The fielder says, yes, I did, and then walk off. Because you know that if it gets caught on camera and it bounces and you've said yes I've caught it you're going to be held in contempt forever so we know that is not going to happen there is no way in the world uh, any team in this any team or any players in this day and age are going to accept uh, a, a, a condition or uh, anything like that that suggests that the batter standing uh, there will accept that the fielder is caught just by going with the fielder's um, you know, word on that. So we go to the point where we're going to have, again, as I said, do we just automatically review every catch to make sure that it's been caught properly? Or do we just go on a, on a base-by-base decision-making whether the batter stands his ground or not? I think it's going to be a long 12 months in all forms of cricket going forward for this kind of thing. I don't think there's any doubt in the world that batters are just going to continue to say, stand their ground and say, I'm just going to roll the dice here and I reckon that perhaps that ball might have touched the ground or I'm going to make the umpire upstairs say that it didn't, in which case the umpire looks stupid. So the odds are in my favour to send this upstairs or to just refuse to walk uh, unless the umpires send me off. And then if they won't look at it, then maybe I'll review it. And I just think that's going to slow up the game. And we're still going to have catches that we don't know. That we're going to be 50-50 propositions that are probably taken cleanly. 
but the umpires don't see that there's any evidence to overturn that and they believe that they didn't. Or vice versa, there are catches that are going to be given not out that are going to, without a doubt, have been caught cleanly and yet the umpires are going to err on the side of caution and say, yeah, no, there's not enough evidence there, so we're going to give the benefit of the doubt to the batter. And I think that's going to cause us a few problems going forward. And I hope I'm wrong. And as we know with cricket stuff, I often am. I just think this is going to be a problem. Uh, and especially with big series coming up in 12 months' time, Australia and India. Um, and in January and February, we have England in India. I think this is going to rear its ugly head. Goodo, well that's today's program on the Casual Man Catter. I hope you've enjoyed the discussion and maybe that's given you some stuff to talk about around the water cooler uh, with your workmates or down at cricket training with your cricket mates or maybe to your fun-loving wife who loves nothing more than to listen to cricket all the time just like mine does. Yeah, that could be false. Alrighty, <laughs> I've enjoyed today. I hope you have as well. And as always, there are many, many other episodes on here, cricket-related and other things related. If you've got nothing better to do over the festive period, why not spend a day and tune in to many, many other programs that you haven't heard before? If not, hopefully you'll be looking forward to the very next episode, not only of The Casual Man Catter, but everything else that occurs on this podcast. Thoughts from the Metal Cavern. Until next time, cheers. You have been listening to a Metal Cavern production.